1 Thessalonians today, we are going to do chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. We're going to begin today by reading the whole thing. It's a short little passage. 16, 17, and 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Short little passage. We are continuing the instruction portion of 1 Thessalonians. We began in the first three chapters with encouragement. Paul was writing to the church and building them up and making the connection. But in chapter 4, he began instruction. And there's been moral instruction, doctrinal instruction. And this is a continuation of that moral instruction. And we get these short pithy little commandments that will run from verse 16 down to verse 22, and then the book will close. So as I've said before, 1 Thessalonians was not written to address any specific problems that the church was having. These are things that apply to any believer anywhere at any time. And so they're, of course, applicable for us. So Paul and Silas and Timothy are just throwing out the most important things they can think of. And these three verses are a unit, I believe. The rhythm and the parallelism, which we're going to talk about, it all ties them together to communicate really one thing, although there's different aspects to it, and that's what we're going to look at today. Each one of these verses has an adverb, which is like an all-the-time adverb, we're going to call it. It's something like always or without ceasing. It's an all-the-time adverb followed by a plural imperative. Plural, of course, because he's writing to more than one person, to the church. So, an all-the-time adverb and a plural imperative. He has that three times. And then at the end of verse 18, we have that phrase, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Because these three lines are parallel to each other and the structure is exactly the same, it seems very likely, and I'm going to teach it this way, that the end of verse 18 does not just apply to the beginning of verse 18, but to 16, 17, and 18. It's very similar to the way some of the Hebrew poetry works in the book of Psalms, where he'll say something three different ways and then have a little tagline at the end of it. It's not just talking to the last thing he said, but addressing the whole unit. So, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, should be attached to this whole sequence of verses. So, that makes this an important section, by the way. If you're wanting to know what the will of God is for your life, here are a few things you can start with. All three of these verses pertain to our relationship towards God. The last several verses were addressed to the church and their relationships to one another, especially the leaders and then to one another. This is more in terms of our relationship with God. Most importantly, it's related to the attitude of joy. And all three of those things build on each other to communicate that same point. So it's an important practical lesson for all of us. We just read the Christmas story that the angels to the shepherds announced, good tidings of great joy. The gospel, the good news, brings great joy. Or, as they'll say here, at least it should. Jesus did not come and die so that you could be miserable. <laughs> Isn't that nice to hear? That the Lord's will for us, as he says in verse 18, is for us to rejoice and to give thanks Despite the so-called spirituality of Christians who are always depressed and upset about something, and there are a few of us, let's be honest, we're always outraged about something, we're always angry, we're always worried, we're always nervous, and we call that being spiritual because we care. 
but all the things in the world. But that's not what the Bible shows us. The Bible shows us joy. In fact, it commands us to be joyful. You are commanded to be joyful. But God does more than just tell us to be joyful. He gives us his own joy by the Holy Spirit. And he tells us, in passages like this one, how to appropriate the joy of the Lord. So you might believe that God wants you to be joyful and believe that God has given you his joy, but you might get stuck and say, I don't know how to make an abstract thing like joy happen. Well, God gives you some instruction right here. We're going to talk about it. Because we can become pouty. <laughs> we can be pouty Christians where we're not experiencing the joy of the Lord. So we sit there and we fold our arms and we sit on the floor and we say, God's not doing what he promised. Well, that seems very unlikely, doesn't it? That God would not do something that he promised. Hasn't he made it so clear God always keeps his promises? But when we fail to experience his joy and the Bible says, be joyful and I give you my joy, then we can start to get grumpy and look for alternative explanations. But what I want to show us today through this passage and through several others, that the Bible tells us to be joyful and then tells us how to be joyful. So if you go to a doctor, you've got a sickness, and the doctor gives you a prescription and says, go fill this prescription and take your medicine. If you don't take the medicine, if you don't do all the things he told you to do, if he says, go out, you've got to lose some weight, you've got to change your sleeping habits, you've got to change your diet, you've got to take these pills. If you don't do any of that, it does you no good to sit on the floor and pout and get mad at the doctor for not doing what he promised to do. He told me he had a solution for my problem. He told me he could fix me. Well, yeah, but you didn't do any of the things he asked you to do. So many surgeries fail because people don't go home and do the physical therapy or they don't go home and take the medicine. It's the same thing for us. God has given you his joy. He's told you how to appropriate that joy. So if you don't do what he's told you to do, you shouldn't expect to have joy in your life. We do dishonor to the Lord when we refuse to do what he tells us. And we bring disrepute upon the church when we don't do what he's told us and yet act as if we have. Well, God just must not want me to be joyful. Well, that's not true because God told you to be joyful. And he told us how. So today is all about getting an attitude adjustment. Maybe you need one. Maybe you need an attitude adjustment because you've let this year and the jokes and the memes and the whole pessimistic attitude bring your joy down to the gutter. And you need an attitude adjustment. Maybe you don't. I hope you don't. But I hope that you can take these short little verses and wherever, whatever state you're in, in terms of your attitude, you can apply them right away. I think that it's that practical. That you can go home today, as soon as this is over, and start applying these things and seeing the joy of your life. It's not a magic formula. It's us just believing what God said and believing when he said, do this, he knew what he was talking about. So we're going to work through these three things. We'll start with verse 16. Rejoice always. This is the shortest verse in the New Testament. Now, we always think of John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept as the shortest verse in the New Testament. But actually, verse 16 here only has two words in Greek. And John eleven thirty five 35 has three words in Greek. So if we want to be technical about it, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 is the shortest verse in the Bible. But there's a depth of profundity here. It begins, as all of these will, with an all-the-time adverb, which is the word always, pantate in Greek. And then the plural imperative is to rejoice, kairite. In English is rejoice always, but in Greek it's flipped. It's always rejoice, pantate, kairite. Always rejoice. 
The concept of fullness of joy or perpetual rejoicing. You see this in the Bible quite a bit, don't you? We're going to be in Philippians 4 a lot today. You might want to put a finger in that passage because we're going to be back and forth. But the book of Philippians especially is known as the joyful book. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, it's a very similar verse. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, what's instructive about that passage in Philippians 4 is that Paul was in prison when he wrote it. Paul wasn't sitting on top of the world with millions of dollars and a nice mansion and and a yacht and a private jet and a speedboat. He was in prison in Rome. And that's when he wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. He also wrote it before he went to prison. So it shows us that he did indeed mean always, pantate. He always did mean that in this passage. And it's interesting to think about this. The instruction to rejoice always is unique to world religions and philosophy. To rejoice always. You get a few different things in the world. You get the stoic thing, which is happiness and sadness should not move you. You should be able just to continue through life with nothing affecting you up or down. And Buddhism has a version of that. Hinduism has a version of that. These pantheistic religions, the idea that suffering's all an illusion, right? You've also got these religions that lean into the grief of life. You know, there are several animist religions and others that, that lean into the grief of life. Others don't really give you much instruction about your attitude. They're more concerned with bringing your sacrifices and, and that sort of thing. And it's not just here, the same thing we hear, you know, don't worry, be happy, just, just forget it, move on. This is a very unique instruction in world religion, to rejoice always. We are commanded to always be joyful. Now, on the face of it, that seems unrealistic, doesn't it? It even seems unfair or it seems cruel. How can God expect us to be joyful at all times or to celebrate continually? Some of you right now in your heart are scoffing at this, saying, yeah, I'm not going to rejoice always. There's no way that's going to happen. Well, let's clear up a few things here. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the exceptions, but let's be clear. You're not required to be in a good mood all the time. You're not required to put on this, this plastic Stepford Wives kind of face, you know, where everything is just perfect and we don't, we don't acknowledge sadness. Read through the Psalms. You know, at night he says, I flood my couch with tears and my bed is, is, a, is a sea because I've been crying so much. The Bible recognizes negative emotion. Romans 12, 15 tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. So we're not supposed to be this weird, unacknowledging the pain of life, that everything is just fine. But it is also important for us to know this. You can't just read a verse like this that says rejoice always. And then throw up Romans 12, 15 or Ecclesiastes or whatever it is and say, well, therefore, since these these verses cancel out, I can have a bad attitude. That's not how it works. What it tells us is that the Holy Spirit, who inspired the writing of Scripture, who inspired the Psalms and Ecclesiastes and all the other verses, Romans 12, 15, also tells us to rejoice always. So this is not a matter of opposing ideas. It's a matter of recognizing that there is a time to be sad. There is a time to recognize the pain. But it's similar to what we read earlier in the book, that we grieve when our loved ones die, but we don't grieve like the world grieves because there's an underlayer of joy at all times. A Christian is to be full of perpetual 
joy. Why? I'll tell you. Because the circumstances of your life or mine or anyone else's are unable to touch the reality of what Christ has done at the cross. The circumstances of life are unable to touch the reality of what Christ has done at the cross. Jesus said it this way in John 16, 22. This is in the upper room. He's talking to the disciples before he goes to the cross. He says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus says, I'm going away and you're heartbroken. You're not going to see me, but then I'm going to rise from the dead. And when I rise from the dead and you see me again, you're going to be so full of joy. No one will be able to take that joy from you because something is going to be so wonderfully true that nothing bad can even touch that, the surface of that level. This is why the disciples could be beaten in the synagogue and walk out rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Paul could be in prison and write, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Satan has been defeated. The devil is still out there working his mischief, but he's lost. The Lord has won this game. Sin has been forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. All the wrong things you do are not jeopardizing your salvation anymore. The sting of death has been removed. Yeah, we grieve at death because we're going to miss them, but we fall asleep, remember, because we're waking up again. The wrath of God has been satisfied, and Jesus is coming back. All that is true. In life, you will have many reasons to weep, but you will always have the greatest reason to sing. And God insists that we do so, that we rejoice always, even in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is, is all about the, the pain and the weirdness and the unfairness of life, keeps coming back and saying, rejoice, be happy. Let the Lord give you good things. You must not let the sorrows of life and the trials of life loom too large over you. You're all going to have heartbreak. You're going to have trials. You're going to have pain. You're going to have loved ones who die. You're going to have people who betray you. You're going to have sickness. You're going to have financial crisis. You're going to fight with your spouse. But you can't let those things loom too large in your life. Sometimes we can take any excuse to be miserable, and we always take the opportunity to be miserable. We're going to discuss how to do that later on, but for now, let me just say it. You've got to determine in your heart. You're not going to let circumstances rule over you. That anytime something bad happens, you crash all the way down again. You've got to determine that's not how we're going to live. Now, this is an instruction. We're told to rejoice. How do we do that? What does that mean? It's important to know, but it's really not complicated. I think you get it. To rejoice simply means to celebrate or, or to make merry. We say it that way. I like that phrase, to make merry. It's like, I'm not merry yet. I'm not joyful yet, but we're going to make merry. <laughs> we're going to make circumstances to adjust our attitude, to do what you need to do to deliberately brighten your spirits. That's what rejoice means. I think Christmas is another great example of this. Why we look forward to Christmas every year. Because we're going to be making merry. We're going to be rejoicing. We're going to put up lights on the house. We're going to sing these old nostalgic songs that remind us of what Jesus did. We're going to give presents. We're going to dress up in the funky sweaters and have all kinds of fun traditions and watch movies that we love. And we are making merry. We're rejoicing. So that even though this year, for example, circumstances in a lot of people's lives aren't that great, but we still love Christmas because we're celebrating. We're rejoicing. Christians are to always do that. You know, it's like the book of Narnia. They had the, 
Always winter, but never Christmas. In a Christian's life, it's sort of always Christmas. There's always a reason to celebrate. There's always the truth of what Jesus has done on the cross. Does this mean we have to have constant parties and not allow negative emotion in our lives? No, of course not. But I think you get the point. You are to always be letting the reality of what Jesus has done ruling over your lives. Think of how the Lord had all those feasts and celebrations for the children of Israel. Every 49 years, they would have a one-year-long party. It's called the year of Jubilee. Because the Lord is like, you're going to celebrate and remember what I've done so that you don't chase after these other gods and you don't get down. It's the same thing for you and for me. The Bible is very clear about this. I want to stop hedging about the ways that this should not be interpreted. The Bible is very clear. Moping and complaining are not good. They're not respectful. They're not worshipful. Sarcasm and cynicism and pessimism are not godly. Proverbs 17.22 says, A merry heart does good like medicine. You know that, don't you? You ever have a, a belly laugh? that just shook you and you couldn't stop and you laughed until your, your stomach hurt and you were afraid that your face was going to stretch off your, your skull. And it's done and you just kind of sigh and you just feel better. The Bible knows this. God knows that. Which is why the Lord is deliberately telling us here, don't let yourself slip into this weird, mopey, sarcastic, cynical, angry point of view on life. It's a discipline. You have to discipline yourself to be this way, to let the gospel be the controlling reality of your life so that your attitude reflects what you believe. It's really funny. If we really believe that Jesus is coming back and our sins are forgiven and we've got the Holy Spirit living inside us, and then we go around and we act like jerks to people at the supermarket and we're always upset and posting weird passive-aggressive things on Facebook like, today was a terrible day, please don't ask why. It's like, what is that? Did Jesus die or didn't he? Well, I've got very serious circumstances. I know you do, but isn't the gospel more serious than all of that? Isn't that more real than anything else? So if today's about an attitude adjustment, this first verse tells us what we're adjusting to. To a cheerful disposition that does not get beaten down by life because of Jesus Christ. And it's good that it's because of Jesus Christ, by the way, because we make such a big deal out of our personality types, don't we? Well, that's not my personality. That's wonderful. Jesus Christ still died on the cross for your sins. That makes everybody happy. And that doesn't mean that your joy is going to look exactly the same as everybody else, but you don't get to cloak your anxiety and worry in your personality and call it joy because that's not the same thing. He says to do so always. Don't let the excuses of why I can't rejoice interfere with God's good news. Don't let the pity parties, because you're trying to get sympathy, get in the way of God's good news. That's how the world thinks. The world looks at their life and say, oh, look at all these terrible things. I can probably get some, some good sympathy out of this, so I'm going to make sure that I really milk it for all it's worth. That's not how the Lord tells us to act. Rejoice always. Let's look at verse 17. Pray without ceasing. This is three words in English. It's actually two Greek words. It's got that all-the-time adverb. Without ceasing is one word in Greek. It's adialeptos. We've seen this word a lot, actually. Paul said in verse 3 of chapter 1 that we pray for you without ceasing. And he says it again later in chapter 2, verse 13, related to the same idea. Adialeptos, without ceasing. That's the first adverb. And then the plural imperative is to pray. 
Nothing complicated there. Just pray. Prosukiste. So adialeptos prosukiste. Without ceasing, pray. So this instruction you can see is parallel to the first. That the, the structure is exactly the same. And so I believe it's, it's connected instruction. There are countless reasons for us to pray. I love talking about prayer. That's one of my favorite topics. It's the one that makes me go over my time the most. I love talking about prayer. Jesus said in Luke 18 verse 1 that we ought always to pray and never to lose heart. Never to give up. So that should be enough for you and for me, that Jesus said, don't ever stop praying, keep going. But Jesus also, like Paul here in this passage, tied prayer to the fullness of joy. So we know what we're aiming at, right? We're aiming at joy. Now we're kind of wondering how to get there. He gives us this in verse 17. John 16, 24, Jesus said, until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus, again, is concerned with your joy. He wants you to be joyful. Now, the connection between prayer and joy might not be immediately obvious, but let's consider this fact. How much angst and sorrow and worry revolves around, is God mad at me? Have you ever had that? Have you ever done something really bad and, and you just maybe were in the wrong place at the wrong time and it, it really collapsed your brain and you're afraid that God doesn't even want you to come and pray anymore? I've been there. It's a terrible feeling. But God is not your enemy anymore. God is your friend and your father. He opened the line of communication. We don't come to God and say, God, can I please pray? The Lord says, hey, why don't you come in and pray? Come in and share in the work my son does and ask and receive from me your good father. And we could add that, that God has promised to give us his joy. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. So the fruit of having a relationship with God is you become more joyful. So when you go to pray, you are guaranteed that God is going to answer the prayer for joy. We stress all the time about what is the will of God. Should I pray for that? We shouldn't stress about that, but we can know for sure. Look at verse 18. This is the will of God, that you rejoice always and that you pray without ceasing. Those things are true. It does not matter if you feel them to be true or not. I just don't feel like God loves me. Listen, that's a hard thing. I know that's a hard thing, but let me tell you, he does love you. And you as brothers and sisters need to make sure you do that for one another, by the way. I just feel so far from God. That's when you need to say, you're not far from God. You've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. I just feel like I've, I've committed the unforgivable sin. You haven't committed the unforgivable sin. And, I've, and sometimes people will say, you're, you're just not listening to me. It's like, no, because I'm not going to entertain the lies of Satan that you've been entertaining and that are making you miserable. We're supposed to counter the lies of Satan with the truth of what we know to be true in the word. God is not your enemy. He's opened up the line of communication and he wants to give you his joy. Either God has spoken on that or he hasn't, but we know he has. I hope that relieves some of you. The very fact that we can pray demonstrates that we have a reason to rejoice. You know, the way other religions pray is they're trying to gain a hearing with their God. Hindu gods don't really care about the people in their theology. They come and they, they offer up their offerings and the, the Hare Krishnas do their dance and the Buddhists spin the prayer wheels. They're trying to get the attention of God or the gods. And maybe the God will be in a good mood and give us something. 
You read about the Greek and Roman gods. They were vindictive and petty, and maybe we'll keep them from getting angry and doing something awful. That's not your God. That's not my God. Our God wants to do right by us. He wants to do good things for us because he loves us. You didn't earn that, so you're not going to lose the privilege. Oh, isn't that wonderful to think about? You didn't earn the right to pray. You didn't, like, get your... your fifth merit badge, and now you've opened up this this new tier of spiritual privileges, and you get to pray now. The Lord sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross and bought the privilege of prayer with his own blood. So unless you can do something that is worse than the blood of Jesus Christ's power, I don't think so, then you still have the right to pray because God loves you that much. This is why prayer is especially important in terms of correcting our attitude and bringing joy into our lives. Jesus connected the two things. So did that passage in Philippians 4 that we're going to look back at several times. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. This is only two verses after Paul said, Rejoice in the Lord always. He says, Do not be anxious about anything. Hmm. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do not be anxious. Pray. That's what Paul writes. Do not be anxious. Pray. If you want a practical way to increase your joy, and I do. I'm a practical man. I want to know the one, two, three, four, five steps. Let me give you one step. You want to be joyful? If you want to rejoice, pray. Prayer is your connection to God. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. That means the more time you spend with the Holy Spirit, the more joyful you become. So pray more. Spend more time with the Holy Spirit. If your spiritual life is a plant that's going to bear fruit, prayer is how you pour water on the plant. You cause it to grow. Not only that, but prayer for your situations calms you, doesn't it? Don't you feel better after you've prayed? It's not all about feelings, but we're kind of talking about feelings today. That when you pray over something that's really stressing you out, and you give it over to the Lord, you just feel better. Because God's got it. Sometimes even the the very act of just praying it out and getting it off your chest, this makes you feel better. Even the world, with their nonsense, gets this. They'll say, you should pray, even though we know God isn't real. Pray to the universe, because you'll feel better when you're done. It's like, listen... God is real. Don't pray to the universe. Pray to the one that actually can hear you. But also, it does make you feel better. It calms you. Don't keep those things inside. Give them over to the Lord. When you pray for other people, it reminds you not to be self-focused. I've got all my mess and my problems, and I think about those mostly because they're mine. But when you come to pray, and you've got a list of friends that you're going to pray for, you start remembering what they're going through. You start giving them to Jesus. You start being concerned for them and loving them. And then by the time you get around to your stuff, you're like, well, God's got it. I guess this isn't such a big deal after all. It's important for us to pray and intercede for other people. And talking to God in general gives you a heavenly perspective. I can't tell you how many times I've been really worried about something. And I come to God, I say, Lord, we've got to pray about this. And God goes, slow down. Let's let's." Let's be thankful first. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Let's worship first. Let's pray for some other things. And then by the time I get around to praying for the crisis of the day, I'm like, yeah, the Lord's got this one. He's in heaven. I'm I'm here on earth. Even in the Bible, it says, God's in heaven. You're on earth. So let your words be few. 
The more you talk about the things of earth, you're like, yeah, actually, you know what? The Lord's got this one. If I've had a dollar for every political crisis that has driven me to my knees, I'd have another dollar for every political crisis that I realized wasn't such a big deal. Because <laughs> the Lord is the King of Kings. When you pray, it gives you a heavenly perspective. This is why when you are under spiritual attack, when Satan has a plan to bring you down, and he does, he tries to minimize the efficacy of prayer in your mind. When the enemy is trying to gain a victory over you, he's going to try to stop you from praying and believing in prayer. It's very interesting to me, and this ought to be a red flag in your life. If you find that you are emotional about everything in your life, and everything causes you to be either swept up in joy or brought down in sorrow, and and you're struggling with your anxieties and your depression or whatever it is, and you come to the Lord to pray, and all of a sudden you turn into this scientific, sophisticated, well, I just don't know if prayer actually works, because there's no evidence that it works, and the Bible is very unclear in certain places, that should be a red flag to you. That you, you, you are skeptic over here, but you believe every other crazy thing that comes into your head. You'll believe any lie that the enemy tells you about other people and what they really think about you. You'll believe any lie about God, but then you come to prayer and you can't believe anything. That's how the enemy works. Consider Daniel. Daniel in chapter 6. He was, he was uh, lifted up and honored under the king of Babylon Babylon fell, here comes Persia. Daniel starts to thrive among the Persian kings too. And all the other satraps are looking at Daniel because they're like, you know what? They're going to make Daniel number two and he's going to be running the empire while the king goes hunting and does things like that. So they say, we got to get Daniel taken out. So they start looking for their political dirt on Daniel and he's got nothing. And so all he does is pray. They say, okay, we'll make prayer illegal. But Daniel didn't stop, did he? He knew better. He knew to pray without ceasing. He also knew that pray without ceasing didn't mean constantly be mumbling under your breath. He knew that it meant nothing will stop me from praying a lot. And the Lord delivered Daniel out of the lion's den. He went through the lion's den, but God delivered him out of it. The enemy wants to pull the plug on prayer. There is not an anxious Christian on this planet who prays as much as they should. I'll say it again. There is not an anxious Christian on this earth who prays as much as they should. And if a Christian who is beaten down by anxiety and fear and worry and cynicism and sarcasm, if they're beaten down by those things, you say, well, you've got to pray. I hear this one. I pray all the time. Let me ask you the question. Are you praying or are you worrying in a spiritual way? You say, I sit down and I tell God all my problems. Okay. Are you praying or are you just rehearsing all the wrong things about your life in your mind? Has God told you how to move forward, but you refuse to move forward? You just want to have something to talk about. You know, I had a band director in middle school. I played the trombone. I don't know if you know that. I was a big deal. I played trombone. But, you know, you hear that phrase, practice makes perfect, right? My director used to wail and yell at us. He was a yeller. He would yell at us and he would say, Practice doesn't make perfect. If you're practicing it wrong, you're going to play it wrong when we all come together. He would say, perfect practice makes perfect. Coach would say the same thing. If you practice your baseball swing, but you're doing it wrong, a thousand reps at home is just going to make it harder to break that habit. It's the same thing with prayer. You say, well, I am praying. But if all you're doing 
is rehearsing all the terrible things and you're never coming to the end of those psalms where he says, but I will hope in the Lord. You never give it over. You never look to the scripture to know how to move forward out of that situation. You're not praying rightly, Christian. You're just worrying by another name. Do not be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart. That is true. So if you are in constant prayer and you're not feeling the peace of God, maybe you should evaluate how you're praying. But I also want to be real clear, and I'm going to call some of your bluff here. Don't, don't act like you're praying all the time if you pray every couple days for a few minutes. That's not real prayer. It might be real prayer when you're doing it. But the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. Daniel would pray three times a day. The apostles kept the hours of prayer. Jesus would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luke 18 says that we should always pray and not lose heart. So pray more. Well, it doesn't seem to do me any good. You're not doing enough of it. So much of this that we're talking about today is about cultivating a relationship with God. If you only see your boyfriend or girlfriend for a few minutes once a week, and then maybe you don't see each other for three weeks, you're not going to know each other very well. Well, the relationship just isn't working out. I was like, well, you don't really have a relationship. I mean, come on. You've got to do what is necessary to foster belief and joy. Let the Lord speak to you what you already know to be true. Why do we spend so much time talking about doctrine? Because you need to know what is true so that when the trials of life come, you've got something to cling on to. I believe that when you begin to pray and you let nothing keep you from prayer and you do what is necessary to prevail in prayer, meaning you turn off your phone so the notifications don't come, meaning you do it at a time where you're not going to be interrupted, when you do it for more than just a few minutes, when you push to the point where you feel like, okay, now I'm actually praying, now I'm actually communicating with God. When you do that, heaven comes to your aid, Christian. The Lord comes to you. Daniel prayed for weeks, and the angel was delayed because a demon was fighting with the angel. It's a battle. You can't say, I did it for a few minutes and nothing happened. Keep going. Labor, prevail, travail in prayer. Think about Elijah, who was supposed to pray for the rains to come back. It was God's will. But he prayed seven times for the rain to come until there was just that little cloud, like a man's hand, rising out of the Sea of Galilee. We used to say when I was in youth group, we had those little acronyms, push, pray until something happens. In order to adjust your attitude, you must rejoice. And rejoicing is impossible, the Bible says, without constant, ceaseless prayer. So don't say it's impossible to rejoice always if you're not also praying without ceasing. That's possible because that's an action. That's nothing abstract. That's something you can sit down and do immediately. If you have ceased praying and you are not experiencing the joy of the Lord, you've not taken your doctor's prescription. You're not doing what the surgeon has told you to do in order to recover. You've got to get up and keep going. Get on your knees. And as I always remind us when we talk about prayer, by the way, it's not enough to agree that prayer would be a good idea. Let's be honest. Say, oh yeah, I prayed. What that means is you were driving down the road and thought, you know, I should really pray about that doesn't count. You've got to actually do the work. Get on your knees and go for it, Christian. If you want to see joy in your life, pray today. That's what the Lord told us to do.
Doctor's orders. Now let's go to the first half of verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is our third short statement. And then the second half of that verse is the modifying clause for all three of them. So our all-the-time adverb, we have one of these for each of them, is in all circumstances. In Greek, that's just en ponti. That word circumstances is not included in the original text. It, it just says in all or in all things. So circumstances works fine as long as you know that it's not just circumstances. It's all things. And then give thanks. Eucharistete. Maybe you've been to a church where they refer to communion as the Eucharist. It comes from the word in Greek for giving thanks. Eucharistete. It's easy to see how the concept of thanksgiving is related to joy in prayer. I think that's obvious. Giving thanks is a critical part of true prayer. We should open up every prayer. Dear Jesus, we thank you. You ever get those rhythms where you just kind of say the same thing every time you start praying? Nothing wrong with starting prayer and you immediately jump into we thank you. And it's also how we remember what to be joyful for. That's what thankfulness is. Let me clarify one thing, though. And again, I said I didn't want to spend a lot of time talking about the weird ideas. I wanted to get into the good ones today. By telling us to give thanks in all circumstances is not some weird commandment to be thankful for tragedy and horrible sin. I know someone, not a personal friend, but a a friend of a friend who experienced a a horrific crime against her. And it, it was a very sad story. And some Christian showed up and said, well, have you thanked the Lord that this happened to you? That is not what this means, okay? Right? That is not what he's talking about. Give thanks in all things does not mean give thanks for all things. Daniel doesn't say, dear God, thank you for these lions. He says, dear God, thank you that you are powerful to protect me from the lions. Now, sometimes we go through life and we come to the other side and it's years later and we actually are thankful for the tragedies we went through. But don't be that guy. That's going to tell somebody going through some terrible thing that they've got to sit there and be thankful for the abuse that they've endured or something like that. Give thanks in all things, not for all things. There is a Greek word that means for all things, and Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy did not use it. Just wanted to get that out of the way. This is all about where we're going to focus our attention. And I've been talking a lot about this today. Are we going to obsess over everything negative? Or are we going to focus on the overwhelming positive that is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's take it back to Philippians again. Remember, this was written from prison. Paul was in prison for a crime he did not commit. And in that passage that we've been reading through where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, Do not be anxious, but in everything by prayer. That passage continues when Paul gives the church a list of things to focus on as opposed to what normal people think about. Philippians 4, 8, and 9 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul tells them, rejoice always. Don't be anxious, but pray. And these are the things you think about. And that's when the God of peace will be with you. Thankfulness is one key way that we force ourselves to think about things that will breed joy. 
So I know I'm supposed to rejoice always. That's difficult. What do I do? Well, you pray and you are thankful. If, you, if all you can obsess over is the opposite of the things that Paul listed in those verses, maybe all you can obsess about is some terrible thing happening in the news or the soap opera of your life or an insult that somebody threw your way. If, they, if that's all you can think about, the joy of the Lord is going to have a hard time finding you. Well, I'm just a realist. I just want to focus on the way things are. No, you're not a realist. Because realistically, Jesus Christ is seated on the throne and all that's going to pass away. And most of it, you're not even going to remember in a few weeks anyway. What it is, is you are accepting a distorted vision of the world that either you've made for yourself or that somebody has made for you. And the Bible tells you not to think about that stuff. Not like you ignore it, la, 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 la. But where are you going to spend your time? Where are you going to park your wagon mentally? This is important. You can control what you think about. Even the way we pray sometimes can be a rehearsal of everything that's wrong. Ever been to one of those prayer meetings? Where they say, Are there any prayer requests? And everybody spends 30 minutes giving a long list of all their problems. And then we spend the other 30 minutes talking about all those problems again just in prayer form. And we've just spent an hour obsessing over all the things God told us not to obsess over. We start with worship. We start with thanksgiving for all that God has done because that will then inform the way we pray and inform the way we think because we'll have a worshipful heart recognizing that God is Lord over all of it and we'll be thankful and have put in our minds the honorable, commendable, worshipful things before we start to deal with the problems. Start with thanksgiving. Just start thanking God for things. Being thankful is like eating Pringles. Like once you start, it's very hard to stop. Right? Remember those commercials? Once you pop, the fun don't stop. You start with the basics of the gospel. That's always true. I've got nothing to be thankful for. Yeah, you do. All right? Calm down. You might be upset, but yeah, you do. Dear God, I thank you that you made the world and that I get to live in it. That's real basic, isn't it? Dear God, I thank you that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I thank you that he rose again and ascended to heaven. I thank you that he's coming back to get us someday. You run through all those things you will have plenty more to thank God for. It's not a matter of not having things to be thankful for. It's a matter of having so many that we miss it. You move on to a never-ending list of thankfulness. And I encourage you to actually say them out loud and actually think through them, not say, oh, God, thanks for everything. No, start naming the things that you're thankful for, and you'll be overwhelmed with all that you have. You have so much to be thankful. You know it. But you know what happens? And I don't know why this is. Maybe this is just the flesh. Maybe this is just sin. But we are so blessed. There are so many problems that we in this land and in this time just don't have to worry about. That smaller and smaller things move to the top of what's bothering us. You know, it used to be Wild animals were going to break in and eat us all. We were going to catch smallpox. We were going to be invaded by the, the barbarians right over there. And no one ever survived childbirth and all these terrible things. We're so far past that. We're so wealthy as a culture. We've got some, our poor people have more than just about anybody else has ever had in all of history. And so all of these smaller and smaller problems have risen to the top, like what my neighbor thinks about me. Like, what did that look mean? 
Or, nobody liked my picture on Instagram. I'm so upset. Smaller and smaller things rise to the top, and we give them the attention as if they were something big and serious. Thankfulness lets you keep that in perspective. We've got to remind ourselves. Because when we forget what God has done, we start living inconsistently. We start living miserable. We start living grumpy and pouty, even though we believe that Jesus Christ is returning for us. And our sins are forgiven, and we're going to spend forever in heaven. That this moment is just a blip on eternity. But we start living as if none of that was true. And that the things happening in this little blip are more important than everything else that's going to last forever. You know, there has been a corrective brought to the church about, you hear this phrase all the time, about wearing masks. Right? We all come to church, we wear masks. Oh, we're all faking it. We should never fake it at church. You're right. We should never do that. I never went to a church where that was a problem, but I know that that happens. But at the same time, here's where that, where that can go. Not all the time, where it can go. People say, well, I just don't want to fake it. I want to come to church and be real with what I'm really going through. And what that means is that person is upset that somebody is insisting that they take the gospel seriously. And they're insisting that their problems be placed in submission to the truth of Jesus Christ. And a lot of times I have found, a lot, not every time, that the people that talk the loudest about how we can't be hypocrites in the church, we've got to not wear masks, we can't be fake, a few years later they walk away from Jesus entirely. And it turns out that person felt they were putting on a mask because they were, and they didn't know Christ, and they didn't know God. So they had no real experience with what it meant to have the joy of the Lord. They assumed that they did, even though they did not. You don't want to let the reality of people who are not abiding in Christ become normal in the church. If you are brokenhearted, don't put a mask on. And we've never done that here. But, but here's what you do. You come here, you hold it up, we face it dead on, we don't ignore it. But then we bring it in submission to the gospel of Jesus Christ. David would pour out his heart in the Psalms. God, why have you forsaken me? If I wrote a song and we sang it here, I would get some letters, I guarantee you. But at the end, he would say, I will hope in God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God, for I will yet praise him. He knew how to take the pain that he was open and honest about and bring it to the Lord and leave it with the Lord and walk away with joy in his heart. There's a passage where it says, David strengthened himself in the Lord. And we ought to be encouraging and helping one another do that and not letting each other wallow in misery. And if you are insistent upon wallowing in your misery and not letting Jesus deliver you out of those things, then don't say that someone's making you wear a mask. You're just not taking your medicine, as we've been talking about. Colossians 3, 15-17 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see that? You've got to allow the peace of God, to which you have been called, to rule over your life. And the key to that, according to the verses I just read, is thankfulness. Three times. Be thankful with thanksgiving, thanking God. Even the world, 
with their slow, stumbling, barely catching up to the first principles of Scripture, science, recommends practicing thankfulness. Have you heard this one? Practicing thankfulness. I, I read a book once where this guy said, what I do every day is I go out and I sit in a quiet place and I just list all the things I'm thankful for because it, it helps me to keep things in perspective in my life. This guy doesn't believe in God. That author, incidentally, had burned through like three or four marriages, but he believed in practicing thankfulness because it made him feel better. We actually believe there's somebody to thank. Not just, I feel really good about this. I'm actually thankful to God because I know it's something he gave that he didn't have to give. Rehearse the blessings of God every day, Christian. Like it says in the Psalms, forget not all his benefits. Keep them at the forefront of your mind. Thank God for all the things he'd done in all circumstances. If we forget to thank God, a lot of times we will forget the things that he's delivered us out of. We'll forget the things that were stressful to us six months ago or six years ago. And we just act like that never happened. Even though it was so terrible and it was so hard for us to go through, if you're thanking God and you're remembering to be thankful, you'd be like, oh yeah, he brought me through that. He'll bring me through the next one. Rehearse the blessings of God. Put your life in perspective and determine like in Colossians 3, let those things, allow those things, permit those things to rule over your heart, especially the gospel. It will be the base motivation of your attitude to rejoice always through prayer and through thankfulness. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, verse 18 says. This is the will of God. God doesn't want you to be miserable or depressed or anxious He's provided the solution. And this doesn't mean that anything bad that happens to you is not the will of God. God wants you to handle the things that bring you pain and sorrow. And sometimes that's a painful process. But God wants you to be full of joy and thankfulness. I've known so many people who have been deceived into serving their sorrow that it's the controlling aspect of their life. It's their defining characteristic, all these terrible things that I believe and that have happened to me. As if Jesus never rose from the dead. And when you start to suggest those things to some people who are so defined by their pain, you come in and say, no, listen, th those things are going to pass away. There there's victory over that. Jesus died on the cross. Folks can even get angry. They get angry. Because as if I'm minimizing your pain. Guess what, Christian? I am minimizing your pain. In reality, I'm maximizing the good news of Jesus Christ. How many times does the Bible say, magnify the Lord. Make him bigger in your heart. Not taking your little problems and magnifying those. You want to minimize those. Not that I'm not taking it seriously, but it's that I take the gospel more seriously. In my own life, I, I had a season, I dealt with panic attacks and spiritual anxiety. I, I couldn't sleep. My stomach was in knots all the time. I was shaking. I was nervous for a while. And what delivered me out of that was a moment where I looked in the mirror before church was going to start, if you can believe it. I was supposed to go lead worship. And I, I had somehow convinced myself that God was angry with me and I'd committed the unpardonable sin and I was done and God was through with me and that if I went up there and led worship, I'd be blaspheming. And I looked in the mirror 
and all these verses that I read my whole life and everything I'd ever known about the Lord, and I looked in the mirror and said out loud, this isn't Jesus. This is not how Jesus treats people. This is not how God treats people. I refuse to believe that this is coming from God. I'm going to move forward. And I was so scared because I thought to myself, what if I just said that the Spirit's movement on my heart was not the Spirit, that it was Satan? Isn't that an evil thing to do? But by determining to believe that God was good, I was set free from those things. Immediately, no. But soon. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. God keeps you in perfect peace when your mind is stayed on him. That's why Paul and Silvanus and Timothy tell us here in 1 Thessalonians, it's all about keeping your mind fixed on Christ, disciplining your thoughts, disciplining your feelings. I can't help the way I feel. Rubbish. Yes, you can. At its most basic, it's simply letting the fact that Jesus Christ died and rose again overwhelm every negative thought and emotion and temptation. Our joy is not dependent on circumstances. It's greater than our circumstances. So you've got to let the Spirit take control of your attitude. Because the Spirit is not going to give you fear, but perfect love casts out all fear. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. How can you let sickness bring you down when God is your healer? How can you let sin break you when your sins have been forgiven? How can we let death defeat us when death has been defeated? How can we let betrayal ruin our trust when Jesus Christ loved us and died for us? How can we let family drama spoil everything when God is our good, good Father? And how can fear be our master when perfect love casts out all fear? I know that our problems are complicated, but in another sense they're not. Because they all end when Jesus says so. Don't let your old life Crowd out the good news. Crowd out the new hope. Some of us have been so broken by these things that you have a long walk to victory. A lot of times the reason we have anxiety and fear and all this other stuff is because there are unresolved sins. There's unforgiveness. There's ingratitude. There's beliefs that we refuse to lay down. And those things fester and stress us out because it's dissonance in your heart. And in order to overcome those things, sometimes it takes a while. If you've made a 10-year mess, it might not take 10 years to undo it, but it'll take a while. It all boils down, really, to a lack of faith. Do you believe everything that Jesus said or don't you? Because you do not honor God when you walk in anxiety and fear. You're told to rejoice. How? By praying and by giving thanks by drawing near to God and trusting that the Spirit's going to do His work. Don't let your attitude rot. Stay in connection with God. There's always a reason to give thanks. You might need to make an attitude adjustment today. I hope you'll do it. Now, is it going to all be fixed this afternoon? Hey, maybe. We serve a powerful God. But maybe you've got to just take some first steps today and watch the Lord break up that fallow ground. That ground that was plowed once. There was fruit there once, but now it's been allowed to lie fallow and dormant and it's just weeds and rocks and it's nasty. The Lord wants to break that up. And I also realize that none of this comports with any of the world's theories <laughs> about emotional pain and deliverance and things like that. But they don't know my Jesus. 
I've seen it. Not just in their lives, in my life. I know that this is true. And when you know that this is true, everything else just falls into place. I want to close with Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, which is emblematic of everything we're talking about today. If you need to start practicing joy and thankfulness in your life, here's a great verse to start reading a lot. Put it on an index card and carry it in your pocket and pull it out every, every so often and read it out loud like a prayer. It's Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, and then we'll close. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Amen.